So if you have a Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 4. But when we uh, study this book, this is penned by a guy named Paul that whether loved or hated, uh, if you're in this room, whether you, if you are an unbeliever, you likely hate him. Um, if you're a believer, you might hate him too, but that's a problem because this is the Word of God. But neither here nor there, Paul penned the majority of the New Testament, and Paul at his core was a church planter. Paul believed fundamentally that he wanted to see the gospel go out throughout the entire world, this gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the fact of its impact, the fact that God came into history, its impact on the world, Paul said, this needs to go absolutely everywhere. And Paul believed the best way to see the gospel go forth was to walk into an environment, plant the gospel, see it change people's lives, and then put people together, congregate them together in what we call churches. It has been said by some very famous people that have studied the Bible that the best way the world, the whole world, all peoples and all places will get to know Jesus Christ is through congregations of people who actually believe it. So let's break that down a little bit. The best way your neighborhood will get to know Jesus is through you believing it, through a family who believes it, ultimately through churches who believe this message and believing that that belief leads to something. Paul gets very inspired by that. He writes all these letters specifically about what congregations look like and he wrote this one in Romans. I'm going to start reading in verse 14 just for a few verses. We'll pray and we'll get working our way all the way through the rest of the book of Romans. Before I read this, know this. We've been 18 months in the book of Romans and you're in the second to last message in uh, the book of Romans. So Romans 15, starting in verse 14, Paul speaking to this church says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles would be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, your word is power and it changes lives. It transforms us from where we are and sets our feet on solid rocks and puts us on new paths. I, I don't know what's in everybody's heart or in everybody's life in this room, but God, you do. Speak to them individually. Speak to us as families. Speak to us as a church uh, that we might live out the life you've called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I need to think about this question as we get into this passage. It's somewhat a question, something for you to ponder, and it's this. My life is meaningless unless I what? Or you could say, my life is worthless unless I think about it for a minute. And be honest with yourself. And there's a guy in the first hour was like, Jesus. That's just the church answer to everything, right? You ask a question, Jesus, and you're going to be right. But be really honest with yourself. 
your life would be meaningless unless you what? Unless you accomplished the dream you've always had of building. Unless your kids turn out like your life is meaningless unless you contribute and attain the goal of. Unless your family looks like, unless you actually get what? Whatever your answer is to this question will show that, what, that which you cherish, that which you hold dear, that which you find fundamental and foundational to your identity and your satisfaction. This whole book has been written by the Apostle Paul. In this section we're going to get into now, if you don't understand what Paul cherishes and what he sets his eyes upon to guide his entire life, you won't get it. Here's a verse, um, Paul speaking, wrote this in uh, the book of Acts. This is Paul speaking in which he says this, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. Other versions say finish the race and complete the ministry. Other verses say complete the task that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So if we're going to get underneath the Apostle Paul and really begin to understand him and therefore understand this section in Romans chapter 15, you have to get that this guy not only said my life would be meaningless unless, he's saying my life is worthless except the fact that I finished the race. Now think about that imagery for a minute, the race. Paul views that he is in a race that God has set before him in Jesus, that he's running this race for Christ, and he individually needs to accomplish in all of his life, in everything he does, his part. And then he says, and there's a calling I have in finishing my part, and it's testifying to the gospel of God's grace. We're going to see here in, in just a minute in this passage that Paul's going to say that this testifying is in both word and in deed. It's both what he verbally proclaims and the way he lives his life and he calls other people to live their life. Now, you might read that and go, yeah, but that's Paul. I mean, we call him an apostle. He wrote the Bible and he's, you know the super spiritual of all the Christians. And many of us do this. We create a strata, if you will. Here's the super spiritual Christians, and it's like Paul, Tim Mon, and Jeremy Olin, right? I mean, there's these, but, but that's them. It's not me. Well, I would submit to you that, you that God wants to break down that whole strata because Paul himself speaking to a church that was ravaged by sexual immorality, ravaged with drunkenness, weren't understanding money the way that they should, the Corinthians. To the Corinthian church, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So you can't read the Apostle Paul here and go, oh, that's the Apostle Paul. I'm just a normal gal. I'm just a normal guy. Because he's saying, no, 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 no. You are meant to imitate me, follow me, is other versions, as I follow Christ. And followers of Christ is just the definition, the literal definition of what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian was just little Christ, those who follow in the ways of Jesus. Paul's saying, I'm leading you in these churches. I'm following Christ. Follow me 
as I follow him. We just sang in the last song, this last verse that we were singing over and over and over, I have decided to follow Jesus. And at that line, more hands in the room went up, which they should. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. But I want to submit to you, and you're going to see today, that the statement that you're going to follow Jesus or that you're going to be a Christian is far more than just raising your hands in worship. It's far more than getting the Christian button and being able to say to people, hey, I'm a Christian. Being a Christian is following Jesus. And just so you know, Jesus himself told us, it's not easy. In fact, it's what many in the world would go, that's nuts. Why would you do that? At many points, you hear the words of Jesus, of what he's calling us into, and therefore the words of Paul, of what Paul's calling us into, and you go, I don't know if that's what I signed up for. And then they would be saying, not to be too weighty here, well then I don't know if you signed up for being a Christian. Because <laughs> that's what this is. So we don't want to just write Paul off immediately here. But Paul, what drove Paul was the gospel. So he said that in Acts chapter 20. I consider my life is worth nothing to me except that I might live in the gospel, finish the race, complete the task of testifying to it in word and in deed. The gospel. So we've got to understand really briefly here, we could do multiple series on this, but what the gospel is. The gospel just means good news. And the good news is this. That the Lord, the king of all the universe, God, entered into human history to fix the world's sin problem. Now, if you're sitting in this room and you go, I don't even know if I believe in sin. You may not even, I don't know, I'm not sure I even understand that concept. We would all agree, believer and unbeliever, that the world's screwed up. It's why there's so many organizations that exist. It's why there's attack ads in politics as people are trying to fix that which is broken. It's the desire for educational reform. Hum human beings agree based upon their action that the world's broken. The Bible calls that sin. The Bible would say that that's there because in our rebellion against God, not listening and following in God's ways, all of creation, the whole world broke. And that God is now... In his son, in Jesus coming into the world, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and the promise of his return is saying to the world, I'm fixing it. And it will be fixed no other way than through the way God intended in his son, Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we and the world must be saved, but at the name of Jesus. So the gospel is God saying, I've come to fix the world, of which you're a part, and you screwed this up. Humanity screwed up. So God's saying the gospel is he came to fix humanity's sin problem, which you're a human, so he's come to fix your and my sin problem. And Paul calls that the good news, and it affects all of life. And that is what drives Paul. Now, the gospel in the New Testament is spoken of as a freeing message, a message that breaks bondage that we're in and leads us unto new life, leads us unto life everlasting, leads us unto life that is full in the fullest sense of the word. So this is a long section from verse 14 through verse 33, and I want to look directly at the Apostle Paul and what's driving him in the gospel and see how it frees us 
to a few things. How it frees us to crave obedience. How this gospel message will free us to take first and next steps, not final steps. And how it ultimately will free us to do hard things. So let's get after it. First, the gospel frees us to crave obedience. Now let me just break that down for a minute. We just broke down gospel. You understand freedom. Crave means you would want it. Now this presents a problem to all of us because we hear the word obedience and it's a little like the phrase work out. Right? We're like, I don't really crave working out. Now there's some of you that do because you've experienced the benefits of working out and you know what it is to see the endorphins released through your body and to get that energy and that high, if you will, through the endorphins. But 99.9999% of us don't care about endorphins and we want to sit on the couch and eat pie, right? <laughs> so saying craving, working out, that's what we, the way we view obedience. And like working out, the only way that changes is we go, we have a perspective problem. And I think that's true on many words in the Bible. Like we sang this song before second to last psalm before I got up here, was about God's holiness. And many of us view holiness as like this terrifying thing, which it is, but we don't understand how winsome it is and compelling it is. Obedience is a word like that that we need to do some work on here if we're going to crave it. Obedience is a word in the Bible in which is presented in such a way that inside obedience you find life, joy, and freedom. Obedience really in the Bible is defined as these last few chapters in Romans has is love. That you would love God and obey him through your loving him and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul was extremely concerned with obedience as many of us have to be as well or should be as well. But Paul was very, very concerned with obedience. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, that's what I talked to you, by word and deed. So he's saying his whole ministry, his whole service, his whole calling in life was meant to go to the nations, to all peoples. Gentiles just means all of those who are not Jews, which means the vast majority of us. He's saying, my whole intention in the writing of the scriptures, in the pursuit of these people, was to bring about their obedience. And I will do it by words and by deeds. Now, he told us that this defined his work in Romans chapter 1, verses 4 and 6. Look at this. He says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, stop for a minute. That means when you say we have faith, everybody would say Christianity is a faith, that your faith in Christ is never meant from the beginning to just be mental assent. It's never meant to be just a prayer that's prayed. Those are important and those are starting points, but it's meant to be obedience. That's a whole life obedience. Paul viewed his whole ministry about bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That just means all people, including you and I who are called to belong to Jesus Christ that our whole lives are meant to be ordered in following Jesus. Paul, in 
Romans chapter 12, the same book that we're in, at the very beginning of it says, therefore, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done in coming into the world, his life in dying on a cross, in raising from the dead, in ascending into heaven, in sending his spirit, because of what he's done, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is Romans 12, 1. He says that, the presenting of your bodies, is your spiritual act of worship. Which means, Paul's saying, that obedience and worship, he's almost using as synonyms. Meaning, they mean the same thing. Which means, Paul's vision of worship is not, and cannot be said, is just singing songs, raising your hands to Jesus. But worship, it's not, it's not less than that. And I'm not saying that's bad, that's great unto the point that it leads you to obey with your whole life. So we said, present your bodies. Well, what do we do in our life that isn't with our body? What do we do? Nothing. Like, we wake up in our body. We brush our teeth in our body. We are in our families, in our body. We work our jobs, in our body. So when Paul says, present your bodies to him, he's saying, in everything you do, do it in the obedience of faith. Do it in worship to God. Do it in service to your neighbor. And in so doing, remember the word obedience means and has built into it the abundant life, joy, peace, and freedom. So now we don't look at then obedience as, oh, you know, it's the salad when I want a cheeseburger. It's like, this is it. What's driving Paul, Paul's saying, should be the drive of every human being. And the reality of the appetite of every human being for happiness, joy, the abundant life, freedom, peace, the pursuit of that, he's saying, will only be found in following Jesus, which is doing what he says. So now obedience doesn't look like this word that we go, eh, I'm not sure. So now when you sing a song, I've decided to follow Jesus, my question to you is, are you really ready to give your life to Jesus like that? Are you giving your life to Jesus like that? This becomes somewhat of an, an evaluation moment for you and I to go, man, I say I'm a Christian. A Christian means following Jesus. And Paul begins to declare that following Jesus is the obedience of faith. That makes me maybe a little nervous. So Paul then begins to go on and, and provide us some other ideas of what the gospel has the power to free us to. The next thing I want you to see is that the gospel frees us to take first steps or next steps, but maybe not final steps. So look at that. The gospel frees us to take first or next steps, but not final steps. That means what it means. So think about it like this. I have four kids. My wife works tirelessly raising our four kids. And she works tirelessly to train them to be good human beings. And good human beings walk. So she has worked tirelessly to teach them to walk. And good human beings, if everything's working right, don't go potty in their pants. So she potty trains them and works tirelessly to do it. She works to teach them to talk and, like I said, to walk and to eat and now to read and teaches them to do math and all these kinds of things. And you're thinking, what do you do? You know, not, not very much. But here, here's what I do. 
I walk in after she's tirelessly worked on this, and she's worked tirelessly to get one of them to say the word spaghetti for the first time. And I walk in and get home from work, and everybody runs at me, Daddy, Daddy. And she goes, this is disgusting. Like, they're, they're telling me I'm horrible. They run to you and think you're a hero. And I look down at one of the kids, and I go, say spaghetti. And the kid goes, spaghetti. And Haley's like, are you kidding me? I've been working at that for four months, and the kids never said the word. You walk in and say it, and they do it. So here's the reality. It's, it's like this in life, right? You work and you labor. You take the first steps, and you know there's no way that kid would have ever said spaghetti had I not worked with him, and yet dad gets the reward of the kid saying spaghetti. And what it does is it's a blow to your pride, and you begin to go, that's unfair. Well, Paul has a moment like this. He doesn't know it when he's penning these words. But if you look uh, specifically in verse 24, Paul says this, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and that you to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. Paul has his sights set on, you see it highlighted, going to Spain. Now look at verse 28. You can see Paul's really concerned about this because only four verses later he says, When therefore I've completed this, that's the going to Jerusalem, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul was dreaming this dream, I'm going to Spain. He was planning his way to go to Spain. Now, I don't know how many of you know church history at all, but if you just follow the logic of the point, you're going to get this. Answer. Did Paul get to Spain? No. Paul never got to Spain. By, uh, there's no indication in church history, in any of the writings, that Paul got to Spain. Now, let me ask you this question. Did the gospel get to Spain? Not long after, in fact, the gospel got to Spain. So there's a question. It's kind of a trick question. Did God need Paul to get the gospel to Spain? No, he didn't. Did God use Paul to get the gospel to Spain? Yes, even though Paul wasn't the one to take the gospel to Spain. Many in church history would say, actually, the people Paul invested in through the multiple churches, likely not through missionaries or church planters, but through everyday people in their vocational life, end up in Spain and bring the gospel with them because they're imitating Paul as Paul imitated Christ. Now here's a question, again, we have to present to ourselves here. Are we willing to take first steps or next steps, never even knowing if we'll get to see the finished product? Never knowing if we'll be the ones to get to take final steps. Do we have the faith? This belief in the gospel enough to say, my first step is worth it. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's this section of scripture that everybody calls the hall of fame of faith. The reason I don't like it is when I think about the hall of fame, I think about people like Tony Gwynn in baseball. And I go, I'm never going to be Tony Gwynn. Or when you think about the hall of fame, you think about John Elway. And you go, I'm never going to be John Elway. But the Hall of Fame of Faith is very real people who did very simple things like taking their first step. 
and people that we now know as heroes who died never thinking they were heroes. So look at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. It speaks about what these people had and why they were commended, why they were cheered. You're doing great. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When you believe the gospel, you know that in its finality, the utmost reward is never the now. It's always coming in the future. Until Christ returns and fixes everything in the world, fixes us, fixes our families, fixes our churches, fixes our world, it's never complete. So we live in faith. And faith is the assurance of what's hoped for, what's believed, promised, and guaranteed in the future. The conviction of things we don't see. For by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. The people of old in the Hall of Fame of Faith were not commended because of what they accomplished. Now, folks, this is totally opposite of our culture. Folks get on magazines, they receive rewards, they're asked to speak in seminars, speak in conferences, they're given medals because of what they accomplish. Now, hear me, I'm all for accomplishment. You know, I'm not trying to teach my kids, don't worry about accomplishing anything, right? That's not true, but that's the way they're commended. Here, people are commended for their faith, and their faith is displayed by what they did. Okay, now hear me in this. We are justified, made right with God by faith, not on the basis of anything we do. But the faith that saves us is a living faith. A faith that leads to a life that's pursuing obedience, that's following Jesus. These people were commended by a faith that, as James would say, worked. So let's look at some examples Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God said, go where? I'm not telling you. Think about that. And yet Abraham took first steps. He took the next step in faith, the gospel frees you to do that. He goes on in verse 9, and he says, By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And look at why. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was able to take first steps because of what he was looking forward to. The gospel promise of what will one day happen that's ahead of all of us when God restores everything. He was looking forward to that and it freed him to take first steps never knowing if in this lifetime he would see it finally and completely. Hebrews 11 verse 13 says this, speaking about all these people. These all died in faith not having received the things that were promised. They never took the final steps. They never saw the final reward. Like Paul never saw Spain. They never saw it. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, they saw what was going to happen from afar. 
But whether or not they ever saw it in this lifetime, they were doing things in faith and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. This section's not going to come up for you, but Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25 in Hebrews 11. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let me just step back for a minute and say this. Sin has pleasure to it. Okay, that's what this just said. But Moses in faith, looking forward, believing the gospel in faith, forsook the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 26, why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking forward to the reward. He was looking forward to the reward. So what prevents us from taking first steps, maybe never knowing if we'll take final steps? Here's one, fear. It could have been fear that prevented Abraham from walking out and going, I don't know where I'm going. Now the Proverbs is very clear. Plan your way. A man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. But fear is never to get in the way of our obedience. And fear is preventing many of us right now from taking the first step or the next step of obedience because we're scared to death. We're scared. I know Christ says if I follow him, I am to forgive. But I don't know if I can forgive this person. And you're scared to death what making yourself vulnerable to forgive that person might mean for you. And he's saying in faith, looking forward to what the reality is, looking backward to the fact that Christ has forgiven you and in so doing, you also want to forgive one another. Take the first step in spite of fear. Take the first step, the next step in faith. Many of you may sit in this room and go, I'm scared to death to ever get involved in another church again. I was so burned in my last church, I don't think I'm ever going to take the next step that many of you ask us to to get involved. I'm scared. People tear me up. Here's one um, thing that Tim Mons taught me. You're going to get hurt again. People are going to mess with you. But in spite of that, take the first step. Consider the reproaches of Christ as Moses did. The pain that comes with love. Worth it that you would take the first and the next step. You fill in the blanks. What's fear preventing you to? The other reason many people will say, I don't know if I want to take first steps, is they go, am I going to get credit for it? Am I going to get recognized? Am I going to get put on the stage? So pride stands in the way of us taking first steps, never knowing if we'll have final steps. I wonder this. I wonder if God doesn't give us the ability and even give us the dreams and the plans that we're dreaming for the very intention that we take first steps. And maybe he gives us those dreams without ever having the intention in his sovereign control that we would ever take the final steps. And maybe he never lets us see the final steps because he knows you will be proud and self-satisfied rather than humble and dependent upon me. He gives you the dreams and says, go for it. And you go for it and you take the first few steps and you never get recognized for it. You never get acknowledged for it. And he goes, that's all I wanted you to do. You know what's amazing about Paul in Spain? Most people would say that Paul wrote the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans in preparation to go to Spain. So if Paul was so concerned that he had to get the credit, that he had to have the final steps, he would have never penned the book that we've spent 
18 months in that many of you have written emails saying it's life transforming. God may have that plan for many of us. All I want you to do, the only piece I want you to play is the first step piece or the next step piece. So the question to all of us right now is, what's the next step God's calling you to do? You could have this amazing dream for your life. I'm going to change the world. And he's saying, just take the next simple step of obedience and rejoice in it. I, I have this fear that if I become a Christian and he's going, listen, just take the next step. God loves you. Take the next step. Take the first step. It's amazing what God does when we're willing to just play our part. We should never underestimate what God can do through things that we see as very, very small that he adds up and makes them very, very great. Here's the next thing. The gospel will free us to do hard things. The gospel will free us to do hard things. And you see that in Paul here specifically as we move to the end of this section in Romans. He speaks, starting in verse 25, about taking an offering specifically unto Jerusalem. And he talks about this, that he's going to gather up money. Because what's happening at this moment is there's a famine in Jerusalem where the gospel started, right? Like where Jesus is killed and where the first disciples are. Now the gospel's gone out to all these other nations. There's a famine that's hit the believers in Jerusalem. And Paul's going out saying, I'm asking you to give of your things so that we can serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we can serve our brothers and sisters who are in need. Now, if you've read any great biography or you've read any great business book and story of a successful anything, the reality is great things are never accomplished without hard things, right? Now, this is speaking about the gospel. And in fact, great things are built up in hard things, a la Jesus on the cross. And it's as true for all of us. But the gospel will free you to move into hard things like giving, because the gospel has this promise of when you look forward and you realize all is Christ and the promise of when all things are fulfilled, all is yours. Now, if you don't know this, I'm going to try to break this down pretty simply. But when the kingdom is fully realized and Jesus comes back, this is the Christian view. Heaven, as we call it, is not clouds and angels holding arrows. Okay, Heaven is like earth exactly right now without sin okay i wish we could build this out but that's the facts if you read what it really is it's life like we're living now without sin so all the relationships have love all the colors are brighter all of that and there really will be places so paul could have said i may never get to spain but i'll take the first steps because i'll be get to spend an eternity in spain seeing the fruit of the gospel having got there. So you may be saying right now, we're planning a trip and we've been saving for six years for this trip to go to Venice. And then all of a sudden you get encountered with a substantial need of a friend of yours. Or you get encountered with a substantial need in our city, like foster children. And you hear about an Advent offering that's coming up to support people who are working to take care of these kids who don't have homes. And you go, yeah, I could give my money to that. I don't have a lot of it. 
And then all of a sudden God goes, what about the money that you were planning to go to Venice with? And you go, now if you believed you have an eternity by faith to tour Venice, an eternity, it might change your perspective on how to utilize your things. Now hear me, I'm not telling you it's wrong to go to Venice. If you can do it, the Bible's clear, enjoy. You know, that's what Paul tells Timothy. Tell the rich in this present age not to be haughty, don't be proud, to be generous, and then richly enjoy all that God provides. So if you have that much money and you go, but what I'm saying to you is the gospel will free us to do hard things like giving up things, whatever that might be, and however it might play itself out. Here's the other thing it helps us to do in doing hard things. It helps us to go into hard situations. Verse 30 of chapter 15, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by your love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers. Pray to God on my behalf. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to Jerusalem, and it's going to be hard. Pray for me. And here's why he says it's going to be hard. That I would be delivered from the unbelievers, that's the Jews in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, here's what he knows. He's gathering up money to take to the poor believers in Jerusalem. He knows when I enter into Jerusalem, there's all these Jews there that I used to run with. That's what Paul was a Jewish leader. I used to run with all of them. They now believe I'm leading all these people astray by promoting Jesus as the Messiah, whom they don't believe is the Messiah, and they're not just mad about it, they want to kill me. So pray for me. He's going, I'm going into a hard situation. What freed him to walk into the face of death in Jerusalem? The gospel. Right? I mean, Paul's the same guy who said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm going to live in love for other people and in turn in worship to God. Or in worship to God and in turn in love for my neighbor. So he's scared that the Jews will kill him. Pray for me, that God would protect me for those people. But then he says that I would be accepted by the believers in Jerusalem. Now this is where you go, that's nuts. He's bringing them money and they need it. Like why would they not accept him? They may not accept that money because they may look at it like we would say, that's dark money, right? Like in politics, there's dark money. Well, what's the dark money? It's coming from the Gentiles, these Jews are ones who are going, they're not being circumcised. It's the whole argument, Paul. They eat that. They do this. Those are dirty people. And Paul's going, pray that in my bringing this to them, both the believers and the unbelievers, I'd be protected from the ones who want to kill me, and I'd be accepted by the ones who want to shun me. So here, the gospel frees you to walk into environments that you might be shunned. The gospel frees you to walk into an environment to love people even when that loving might be dangerous for the sake of the gospel. Don't misread into what I'm saying. There are many times that dangerous situations we need to remove ourselves from. But the gospel frees us, bottom line, this is the point, to do hard things. Now here's where we're going to end. There is no way we don't sit here right now and go, I don't think I can live like that. And I want you to know, I'm not even calling, nor do I think God's calling all of you to go to Macedonia or to go to these things. But he is calling you to go into your own home and obey him. Love, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Families, love your children. Children, obey your parents. He is calling you to go into your neighborhood 
and love your neighbor as yourself in your workplace and love your neighbor as yourself. In many of those situations, you're going to go, yeah, but you don't know. The gospel frees you to do hard things. And you may say it's impossible. I want to leave us with two things. One is empowering. How do we get the power to do it? The other one I think is unbelievably inspiring. Here's the first one that Paul knew. Everything Christ is calling you and I to do, he has done. He has gone into hard situations because he was empowered by the Father, because he was living in the Holy Spirit, right? How hard? Death on a cross, the weight of the sin of the world on him. He took the initial steps, the first steps, leaving heaven, Philippians 2 says, that in love he left heaven, left everything that he had, all that was great, and in humility entered into the world, took on flesh, then dies a criminal's death on a cross. The one we follow has been there, sympathizes with us, and has sent his spirit to empower us. Jesus Christ's work on us shows us that if we follow him, we can move into these places. Now here's where we're going to end, which is in Hebrews chapter 11 again. These people did hard things. Look at this. Women received back their dead by resurrection, all because of faith. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep, goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. Right? And the, the gospel freed them to do hard things. Right? And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised. We already made that point. Since God had provided something better for us. So Abraham, Moses, Sarah, like go on, Samson, all these people that are mentioned in here and many more, didn't receive what was promised them because God provided something better for us. That's for you and me. This is, this, if this isn't inspirational, or get a little crazy, but this is incredibly inspirational, something better for us, that they, that apart from us, they, Abraham, Moses, Samson, Sarah, and all the rest, would not be made perfect apart from us. Remember the race, Paul said, that I might finish the race? The Bible presents this walk with Christ, this obedience of faith, as a race in which we only play a part and it isn't completed until the race is finished and we need the whole church, past saints, present saints, and future saints to do this. Not to change the world, but to do their part. And your part today is the simple first or next step. Knowing in inspiration the rest of these saints of the past won't be made perfect without us being faithful. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for what the Apostle Paul teaches us in following Jesus. God, I pray right now for those who are in this room that are scared to death of obedience. God, free them. Let them experience the joy and delight of obedience. God, I pray for those who may never have taken the first step of faith. God, I pray that they believe, even come forward to talk to somebody after this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.